0: Alright, let's go ahead and get started. You're good to go, Dennis. I will uh, pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are um, so grateful for all that you provide us, um, giving us our provision, giving us our life, and allowing us to to know you through um, the sending of your Son, we do pray that as we um, learn and open up your word this morning about um, and think on the topic of prayer, that we would um, come before you with, with more worthy petitions as we, as we examine what is a worthy petition before you. And um, pray that um, this time would be, would be beneficial for us, that we would grow in our understanding of your word that we would grow in our appreciation and and knowledge of you, our love for you. Um, and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to go through chapter 3, or we're actually going to pick back up in the book, Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. And the goal is to get through chapter 3 of the book, which is called Worthy Petitions. And chapter 3 is sort of a continuation of chapter 2. And so, since it's a continuation of chapter 2, I thought it would be helpful if we just recap briefly of what we saw in chapter 2. So, so, Carson in both chapters, 2 and 3, he's analyzing a prayer of Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. It would be very helpful if you open up to that text. 2 Thessalonians 1. And in chapter 2, what we looked at last meeting was what Carson called Paul's framework for prayer, and these are just the reason Paul gives in the text that, that ground his prayer for the Thessalonian Christians, or, or we could call it the foundation of his prayer. And what we saw is that Paul was thankful for the signs of God's grace was that the signs of God's grace growing in the believers' lives. And specifically, he gives thanks that their faith is growing and that their love for one another or their love between one another is increasing more and more. And he's grateful that the Thessalonians are persevering under trial, that they're persevering in the faith under trial. So these are the signs of grace in the believers' lives And this is one of the key components of the framework of Paul's prayer, of Paul's petitions that we're going to look at today in verses 11 and 12. The the second key component of his framework is his confidence, that's Paul's confidence, and the truth that one day, when Jesus returns to finally judge the living and the dead, believers will be vindicated. There will be ultimate victory for the Christian and an utter destruction for the non-believer. That is where everything, that's that's where all of history is heading. And in a sense, this is what is most important to Paul then. If this is a true reality, it is what is important to Paul. It's crucial to understanding Paul's thinking. So that eternal perspective which is what, what Carson calls it, that eternal perspective plays a vital role in what and how he prays for the saints in the church. Now all of that, again, is, is the framework or the foundation that, that Paul is operating with when we see his petitions to the Lord. As Carson says, if we follow Paul and adopt the kind of spiritual framework he lays out in verses 3 and through 10 we must ask what kind of petitions we should present to God. If we're grateful for the most important things and determined to live with our eternal destiny uppermost in mind, what kinds of things will we be praying for? What kinds of things will we pray for? And that's the question this chapter really seeks to answer. And the question Paul actually does answer in the text. So let's just start by reading the text, then we'll, we'll jump into the chapter. So I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the structure of these verses, I think, is, is pretty clear. We, we see two petitions in verse 11, followed by a desired result of the prayer, and the reason for the prayer in verse 12. And that's actually how Carson structures the chapter, which is very helpful. It's a really structured chapter in that way on these these four components of the verses. So let's first think about the two petitions that we see. First we see Paul prays that God might make these Christians worthy of their calling. Paul prays that God would make these Christians worthy of their calling. Now this phrase, worthy of their calling, I think it needs some explanation. When Paul uses the language of calling, or, or the calling of God on the believer's life, he's most always talking about what, what we often call God's effectual or God's effective call. That is the, the spiritual call where God the Father calls, calls His elect people to faith in the Son through the work of the Spirit. And it's effective because all people that God has called in this particular way will be justified. They will be saved. This is what we see in Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. Paul writes there, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So notice, for, for Paul, to, to be called to God means to be, to be justified, or we could say to be saved. But it's not as if Paul is praying here in, in 2 Thessalonians, that God would make those Christians worthy of being called in a sense that they, they need to get their life in order or they need to do some certain acts or certain things to, to be justified or to earn their salvation. Right? That's, that's clearly not how Paul thinks. Carson interprets this, and I think rightly, that, that as the Thessalonian Christians have been called, they've already been called, in other words, they, they have been saved, So he's praying that these Christians would live up to that calling. Or in Paul's language, that God would make them live lives worthy of their calling, of their salvation. And what exactly does that mean? To live worthy of what we were called. To live worthy of our salvation. Carson argues, in the least, it means that believers must grow in the things that please God. So that, that God would be pleased with our, our conduct, with, with us. But I also think it's really important when we think about a prayer like this, of what Paul's not saying, his prayer that, that God would cause the Thessalonians to become worthy of their calling by, by more and more growing in the things that, that please the Lord. So this is things like obedience to the Lord's commands and and growing in knowledge and satisfaction in Him. Those things don't negate that it's only by God's grace that we're forgiven, that we're justified, that we're made heirs with Christ. Or that it's only by, grace, by the grace of God that we're, we're made righteous, completely pure, justified before His judgment throne. Or it's only by the grace of God that, that we have been given the Spirit and have tasted eternal life, as Carson said. And Paul wants Christians to be worthy of that calling. But we can't forget, we, we never earned those things. It's still a work of grace in the Christian's life. And so, in a certain sense, Paul wants us to become what we were not, and that's why he's, why he's asking God to do it. That's why he's praying to God for God to, to do something. He's praying that Christians might become worthy of all that it means to be a Christian. He said another way that we might become worthy of what it means to, to actually be a child of God. Now, Carson gets pra- very practical with what all that means in the life of the Christian in a, in a later chapter, but for now, I think we should just recognize that this key concern for Paul so our our growth you could say our spiritual growth our growth in Christian maturity is is generally not what occupies our minds and our petitions to the Lord at least not not very very often that's the claim from Carson in the chapter this is what he spent a lot of time on in chapter 2 if you remember how our concerns can easily or or very easily be consumed with with kind of Earthly things, our our success, wealth, health, popularity, even even just just our happiness at a basic level, those things tend to dominate even well-meaning Christians' prayer lives. And it's just important to note that's not Paul's main concern here. Paul doesn't even pray that the Thessalonians' problems would disappear, and this is a church that was going through some, some significant issues. Right, he doesn't uh, even pray that they wouldn't endure persecution at this time. Now, I don't think it's wrong that we would go to God to ask us to deliver us from trial. I mean, Paul does that himself elsewhere. Right, he asks God three times for for him to remove the thorn from his flesh. So obviously, Paul doesn't think it's it's wrong to plead with the Lord or to ask God to to remove a trial. But again, it's just important to note that Paul is constrained in his prayer here by the framework he brought to the prayer, which, was, remember, was his, his gratitude, his gratefulness for the signs of grace in the believer's life. That's, that's his, his main concern here. So he's praying for more signs of grace in the believer's lives. And he's praying with, with an internal perspective. So with that in mind, the the most important thing for believers in Thessalonica and believers in Amarillo, Texas, is that we would grow in godliness. Simply put, that we would grow in godliness. That we would grow in our Christian maturity. And this emphasis from Paul is something that we see quite a bit in, in all of his writings. It's not just here. As Carson says, Paul is constantly telling people, in effect, to become what they are. In other words, Paul is saying, God has made you his child. God has made you his child through his free grace poured out on you that that you don't deserve. Because of that, we must now become like children. right? what, 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 What are children? Obedient. Good children, at least. Obedient. Wanting to please our Father. God has has graciously called us. Now we must live up to this calling. That's the idea Paul is getting across here in in the text. Carson writes that that living up to our calling is not less than Christians becoming increasingly holy, self-denying, more loving full of integrity, steeped in the knowledge of God and His Word, and delighting to trust and obey our Heavenly Father. That, that, that's a baseline, I think, of how we can think of how we live lives that are worthy of our salvation, that are worthy of our calling. That's how we please our, our Father. But notice something. This is really, really important, and it may be really it may be so obvious it's easy to miss, actually. But we, in and of ourselves, are not strong enough. We do not, we're not disciplined enough to, to take these steps of obedience in ourselves, in our own strength. And what's one simple way we can know this? This is a legitimate question. From this text, what's one simple way we can know this? I told you it's really simple. Okay, yeah, yeah, that, I'm even more simple than that. <laughs> Paul is praying to God to do it, right? This is a prayer, right? He's asking God to do it. So the nature of the calling of the Christian and living in light of that calling, that, that, the nature of that is overwhelming in some sense, to live and grow in obedience and to love God more and more and to depend on Him more and to, to test the world more, to, to fight our flesh and the sin that remains in us, that is difficult. It's even impossible. It's an impossible work apart from God's gracious working in us. And that is why Paul is praying about it. So notice he's not asking the Thessalonians to simply try harder to be better. He's asking them to to. He's asking God to make them worthy of their calling. So what's the big implication then of this verse? God is the one that has to work in our lives to make us worthy. That's why it's very crucial that we make that we incorporate this into our prayer lives and that we pray about it a lot, even daily, because we can't grow in Christ. We can't grow in holiness. We can't grow in spiritual maturity without God's working in us. So we need to pray for God to, to do that in us. It needs to become part of our, our daily habits in our prayer lives. Which leads to the obvious question that, that Carson takes it to in the chapter is just a diagnostic question. How often or or how, how often do you pray for yourself in this way, for, for the people in this congregation or for your family members? Going back to chapter 2, where, where Carson gives the typical things Christians pray for, generally things surrounded about, around physical well-being and, and the kind of prosperity, comfort of our lives, how often do we pray for things like health and provision <laughs> for our family for our friends, for ourselves. And again, as I said last week, there isn't anything wrong with that. We should be taking those things to the Lord in prayer. But if those are the only things we pray for, then something is missing. Something is probably wrong significantly because like Paul here, if we have the right eternal mindset that sees the value of growth and godly character as kind of paramount to the Christian life, that's what we're going to be praying for, because we value it. So really the example of this passage is that we should more and more incorporate prayers for ourselves, for our family, for the Christians that God has brought into our lives, specifically in this congregation. We should incorporate prayers for God to to cause us to grow, to grow in holiness, to grow in maturity, to, to make us live lives that are worthy of our calling. So I'll pause here for any comments or a good illustration. I can't remember the scene. I only remember the beginning scene, which is traumatizing, honestly. <laughs> That's good. Anything else? The, the next petition that we see Paul make in his prayer is that by God's power and working, he might bring to fruition each Christian's good faith empowered purposes. I'm going to repeat that because it's a lot and kind of confusing. Paul prays that by God's power, he, that, that's God, might bring to fruition bring to fulfillment each Christian's good faith-prompted purposes. Or you could just say each Christian's good works, good deeds. We read this in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. So it's that idea of fulfilling every resolve for good in every work of faith. So that's the phrase, those, those, those two phrases that we're going to be considering here. So what Paul is saying and praying for is for God to, to and by His power, so to empower us, make us fruitful in our good works, what he calls our, our faith-prompted desires. And Carson highlights here for, for a good bit amount of time in the chapter how astonishing this truth is for the Christian life if we we truly dwell on it. So a presupposition Paul has here in this verse is that Christians have been so transformed through our conversion to Jesus that we now develop new desires. Desires for goodness. Desires for for God-glorifying desires and to do God-glorifying and good deeds prompted by our faith in Christ. Carson calls this having Christian plans or, or Christian goals that we desire to execute, right? We, have a, we kind of have a paradigm shift when we become believers. We have a new set of desires, a new set of goals, a new sets of things that we value as being new creations. And this is, I think it's just so shocking given the state of our desires and goals without Christ. Without Christ, in our fallen state of unrepentance, our ways are contrary to God's ways, right? We're, we're, We're called slaves to sin. And yet, for the Christian, we are so transformed, so entirely different that our desires, our goals, what we plan to do with our lives, what we plan to do day to day in our schedule actually becomes more and more what is pleasing to the Lord. Works that are good, simply meaning that works that are approved by God, and works and deeds that the Lord Himself will fulfill. Can't miss this, or the, the works that the Lord Himself will bring to fruition. It's a really a remarkable truth. And Carson lifts several examples of how these, these new sets of desires, these new plans for good works. And works of faith may take place in the believer's life. Christians think things, as Carson writes here. I'm going to quote him at length because I think it's really good. He writes, Christians think along such lines as these. I wonder how I can witness to my neighbor. I wonder if I can get a Bible study going in this neighborhood. I must really sort out how I can help that rather pathetic old lady down the street who has just lost her husband. And who does not seem to have any friends. What would be involved in trying to befriend the high school kids of my block? I wonder what I can do to welcome visitors coming into our church. Perhaps the local chapter of the prison fellowship could use me in some way. Right? You, you see, we could go on and on and on of the many good things that Christians do, and not just do because we have to do them, but. But we do these things, we do these good deeds, because we want to. Our desires have changed. These these works are prompted by our faith. They're prompted by our our status change as Christians. And Carson makes the, the helpful clarifying point here that it really would not be helpful to get bogged down by what we're not doing, because no Christian can do everything. And we shouldn't try to do every good thing a Christian could possibly do because what inevitably happened is we would all be very miserable people, at least very burnt out people. But we can all do something. That's kind of his big charge here in the section. We, we, We can all do something and there's actually an expectation in the passage that Christians ought to be doing something. That there should be some faith-prompted good works that are occurring in the Christian's life. That's why Paul's praying for them to be fulfilled, because they're, they're occurring. right? Notice that? Some good works that spring forth from a true faith. But Paul goes a step further in this verse. Proxen just mentioned this. Notice how Paul prays that it's by God's power <laughs> that he will bring these godly be- plans, he's going to bring these godly deeds to fruition. So uh, assuming that we do develop these good works, that we do develop these plans for good, Paul prays that God himself would take our plans, he would take our purposes, he would take our ministries, and so work them to bring them to fruition, to fulfill them, so to, to make them fruitful is a simple way to think about this. In other words, God and God alone is the only reason any of our Godly, good endeavors will be fruitful. And what that means is something I think we we all know from the, the clear teaching of Scripture. Just think of a place like Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Right? Unless God works in us, unless God works through us, unless God is the one who empowers our good works, and our plans for ministry, then they, they won't be fruitful. As Carson says, if God does not bless our ministries and His power, then they will not display any life-transforming, people-changing power. I like that, people-changing power. Unless God is working, all of our good efforts will inevitably fail. fail. More from Carson here. Unless the Lord fulfills our good, faith-prompted purposes, they will remain arid, fruitless, either empty dreams or frenetic activity with no life, but in either case, spiritually anemic. I think it's a very helpful way to think about this. Because I think we need to be aware that there's a danger, not just on a a church-wide kind of congregational level, although there's a danger of that for sure, but also just on a personal level, Of having a a bunch of ministries that keep us all very busy, but without the Lord's moving, then those ministries are just actually frenetic activity. It's just people doing things, busybodies. It's a great danger for for churches. So, So what's the solution? Or what's the solution if that's the danger? Well, at the very least, it can't It's not and can never be less than what Paul does here in this text, which is to ask God, to plead with God, to petition with the Lord to move, to act. Ask God to work, petition with our Lord that he will bring our plans to fruition by his power. And again, I think this really shapes how we think about praying together as a congregation. right? Because it would be so foolish of us to make plans for ministries, to execute those plans for ministries, but not seek the Lord and prayer for Him to bless those ministries. You see the, the level of hubris and arrogance that that shows. By our lack of prayer for good gospel-centered ministries, we're, we're signaling that we think we can succeed or be fruitful in those endeavors without the Lord's working, without the Lord's power being displayed, which I think when we say that out loud, we can hear how ridiculous that sounds. Of course, right, we, we would all say in this room, of course we need God to work. We need God to move. We need God's power to move. We have nothing in ourselves to, to change someone's heart. And not just, again, in our formal ministries in the church, but also in each of our individual personal ministries as as Christians. So just think about our evangelism efforts, our personal evangelism efforts, or our service to our neighbors, our relationships with our co-workers. We need God to work and, and act in His power to bring those good plans that we have, the good deeds that we have planned out, to fruition, or they won't succeed. Again, this is why I, I would argue, I think Carson argues well here, this is why this, this type of thing needs to be on the top of our list, of, of, of our prayer list. Praying for God to, to work in our, our service, and our good deeds, in our ministries, um, because it's a priority for, for Paul. So let's move on to, to verse 12 of Chapter 1, so, so after he, he lists the, his petitions, pa, Paul Powell, Paul. now discloses uh, a two-part goal for his prayer. The first goal of Paul's prayer is that he seeks the glorification of the Lord Jesus. Paul seeks to glorify Jesus. We see this clearly in verse 12. To this end, we always pray for you, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Now, if we have any familiarity with Paul, it shouldn't surprise us that the goal of his prayer is the glorification of Jesus. That's pretty much what Paul is all about. But it's also a very good reminder that these good things that Paul is praying for, which just as a reminder, are that believers may be counted worthy of our calling, and that god might fulfill our good faith prompted works our good deeds right those good things are not and they can never be ultimate ends or ultimate things that doesn't mean that they're, they're not important things that should be valued and pursued. i just told you we should be praying for you for them paul just is is praying for them. <laughs> right what does that signal to us they're important they matter But they're they're what Carson calls proximate ends. So not the ultimate end. Not the ultimate goal of the Christian life. Said another way, our growth in Christian maturity and our, our good ministries are good things, but not ultimate things. The ultimate end is that Jesus be glorified, which is the result of our growing maturity and fruitfulness. Carson's argument here, I think, is, is a very good one. He says, we, we really can't miss this, or we're going to be in danger to make those good things, right, our Christian maturity, growth and holiness, good works, we're going to be in danger of making those good things ultimate things. And the reason for this is that, or the reason to guard against something like that, is because for the Christian... our our ultimate desire, our ultimate aim in this life is that our, our Lord would be praised, that our Lord would be glorified. It's fundamental to who we are. And the danger of making those good things, ultimate things, is that it will rob Jesus of His glory, the glory that He is due, and it will inevitably lead to our self glorification. We'll be tempted to praise ourselves for our maturity and for our growth and for our fruitful good works if we do not give Jesus the glory. And remember, it's only by God's grace and it's only by God's power that we can even grow and be fruitful in the first place. So glorifying Jesus is actually the logical conclusion of our growth and good works. It's actually the only thing that makes sense if we're understanding things rightly, because we're only growing and being fruitful, why? Because Jesus is working in us through His power. God is working in His power. So again, glorifying Jesus is the logical conclusion if we're understanding things rightly. But Carson uses some charged language here, I'm talking about Christians seeking self-glory for their spiritual growth, he uses charged language throughout this book pretty entertaining. But he calls it a wretched bastardization of our goals. A wretched bastardization of our goals. It's wretched when we want to win glory for ourselves instead of our Lord. Which, it's just a good check on our motivations, because we're all tempted in this way, I think. Carson writes, when we arrange flowers in the church, or serve as an usher, or preach a sermon, when we visit the sick, run a youth group, or attend a prayer meeting, when we do any of these things with the secret desire that we might be praised for our godliness and service, we have corrupted the salvation we enjoy. We've corrupted the salvation we enjoy. And the reason for that corruption is that God is not the center of our motivation. And he's not the center of our lives. He's not the one that that we want to glorify when that is our motivation. Rather, we are. And we know from places like Isaiah 42.8, which Carson points out, God demands his own glory. He demands to be central in our life. And when we fail to give him that glory, the glory that he is due, we're in danger of putting the spotlight on ourselves. And anytime Christian service or good work seeks to glorify ourselves instead of the Lord Jesus, we have what Carson calls paganized Christian service, where we have co-opted Christian virtue, we've co-opted Christian service to serve ourselves, to serve our ultimate ends. Right? You see how he would be calling this a wretched bastardization of what the Christian life is. And Carson argues that that Paul recognizes this tendency that's why he does puts this in his prayer he argues that Paul recognizes this tendency we all have towards self-worship and thus he articulates for us as a good teacher would as a kind teacher would he articulates the proper goal of his prayer and therefore the proper goal of our prayers not that Christian's reputation would be good, or that we might have a great name. No, he praised these things so that Jesus would be glorified. So that Jesus would be glorified in us and through us. Now this leads to the second goal of Paul's prayer, which on the surface may seem to contradict everything I just said, so you gotta bear with me here. The second goal of Paul's prayer is he seeks the glorification of believers. So we read in verse 12, So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. And you be glorified in in him. So again, on the surface, this may sound like Paul is making a contradictory, contradictory statement, that after saying the glorification of Jesus is absolutely pivotal, it sounds like Paul is saying that believers can seek praise for themselves that we can be glorified. One good lesson here in reading our Bibles, which I've mentioned this one in the past, probably a lot. I say this a lot, at least when I'm reading the Bible. This will be the first lesson in my Hermeneutics 101 class that I'll probably never get to teach. The lesson is Paul's not stupid. right? The, 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 The biblical writers are not dumb. So he's not contradicting himself. And that leads us to conclude, he, he must mean something else. And Carson, in line with, with the, the other commentators that I, I read this week, argues we should read this as the believer's glorification um, in the sense of, the, of our glorification at the end of times. So back to Romans 8. All those whom are called are justified, and those who are justified are glorified meaning that that one day we will live in perfection in the splendor of the age to come and the new heaven and the new earth completely perfect completely spotless but even in in Romans 8:30 right that there's a present tense to this we we are glorified now see this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 3:18 Paul says in this age so in the here and now we are being transformed into the same image of the Son from one degree of glory to another. So in Paul's thinking, the glorification of the believer is that that final glorification where we will be without spot or blemish, no sin, enjoying perfect bliss in God's presence. That's the, right, that's the believer's final destination. That fits in also... Notice this, that fits in context with the eternal mindset that Paul's having in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. But even now, we are being transformed from glory to glory, meaning in this life we're we're growing in holiness. We're being more and more transformed into the image of the Son. So that is the sense that, that we're glorified in Christ. We are glorified when we are being made more like Him. And it's important to note in Paul's thinking, this type of glorification of the Christian does not take anything away from the glory that Jesus is due. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who makes our glorification possible. So in that sense, then, our glorification... Are becoming more and more like Christ, our transformation that happens to the believer is a means that brings Jesus' glory. So a simple way to think of this is that Christ is glorified as we are glorified. Not, again, not in any self-exalting sense, but in a die-to-self sense and to, to live-is-Christ sense. That is when we're glorified and Christ is glorified in us. And that gives us a big clue of the goal of Paul's prayer. Paul wants Christians to be glorified, not only at the end of time, but now as we prepare for the end and are being progressively transformed in our life. This is what we call sanctification. So this then is the twofold goal of Paul's prayer, that Christ might be glorified, he might be magnified, he might get the praise that he's due, and that we are glorified in him through our transformation into looking more and more like him in the image of the Son. So I'll pause here for any questions, comments about this section. All right, the last section deals with the, the kind of the grounds for Paul's prayer is how Carson puts it. So we read in the, these verses, we always pray for you so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God, the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Carson argues it's as if Paul, in ending this prayer, is not wanting to leave the Thessalonian Christians with the the impression that what he's really praying for is that they'll just try harder at the Christian life. He he doesn't want to leave that impression with them. Of course, at one level, living lives worthy of our calling and living lives that are... uh, saturated by faith-prompted works, good deeds, right, at one level, that does require massive amounts of effort. It does involve trying harder. In fact, it requires a lot of hard work and effort, as every Christian in this room knows. We do not become holy by sitting on our hands. It just doesn't work. Yet we need to always be reminded, as Paul does here, that our efforts at trying harder only occur because the grace of God that is at work within us. Just as we're saved by grace, we're also sanctified by grace. I've already mentioned this earlier, but this truth is implicit in this passage by the very fact that Paul's approaching God in prayer. That Paul is approaching God with petitions, asking God to do something. Meaning he's asking God, to, to work, which implies that it is only by God doing something and working in the lives of believers that we will grow and be fruitful. What's that called? That's called God's work and God's grace in our lives. By Paul asking God to grow the Thessalonians in spiritual maturity and to fulfill their, their good endeavors, that shows that, that he is aware of that God's grace must be at work if these petitions are to be answered. And so then Paul even grounds the prayer in God's grace. The simple point here is, as Carson says, that we become fruitful by grace, we persevere by grace, we mature by grace, by grace we grow to love one another more, and by grace we cherish holiness and a deepening deepening knowledge of God. So grace is necessary in all of this. We can't glorify our Savior. We can't be um, growing in sanctification or being glorified ourselves without the grace that He provides. So this is a foundational theological truth that we see that that, that grounds Paul's prayers and should be a ground for our prayers. Now, in, in conclusion of this chapter, Carson urges us to consider just how holistic this prayer is and the foundations of this prayer or the framework of Paul's prayer is. It is really holistic. And he sets, Carson sets this in contrast to how some Christians sometimes think of prayer. So Paul's petitions are not just petty petitions or isolated requests to a God who just so happens to every now and again intervene in our lives to make something happen. Carson argues, a worthy petition to God is not thinking of ourselves as basically independent of God, people who just need a little blessing, who just need a little help from time to time. Carson writes, that's closer to pagan magic than to Christian, to Christianity. And so Christians need to have kind of this more holistic view, like the Apostle Paul does, of prayer, meaning we need to remember all of the presuppositions Paul's working with as he makes these petitions to the Lord, which we can simply call a a biblical vision of prayer or a biblical framework of prayer, where we confess who God is and what He's done for His people a vision that includes a a true picture of who we are, people that have been, been saved by grace and must now live transformed lives as new creations that we have been saved into. Live lives, as Paul says, worthy of that calling. And that biblical vision also has an eternal perspective that our life in Christ is heading for a final glorification a final vindication at the end of the age. And so we must value value that truth, we must cherish that truth. We must cherish all of that. And if we do so, if we have a true understanding of those theological truths, it will greatly shape, it will affect how we pray. It will shape our prayers. And the inevitable result is not that that we have a a kind of formula, say, well, this is how Paul prays, so I'm going to pray with these words. That's not the intention of this chapter, right? The intention is to have a holistic view of how Paul prays so that then, then our petitions to God become more and more in line with what we see in Scripture. So again, Carson's vision, Paul's vision, is that we need to have a true understanding of who God is of who we are in Christ, and where we're going, our our final destination. We need to have all those things clear in our mind, clear in our hearts, truths that we confess, not just that we confess, but truths that we, we bank our life on. And then with our knowledge of those things, and with our belief in those truths, then our petitions will be more aligned with the Scriptures. Our petitions will sound more and more like Paul's when we're working with Paul's presuppositions. So that's really the big goal of chapters 2 and 3. Is that. That we would be more in line with, with Paul's theological framework so that our prayers to God would be more aligned with his. And I am all done. But we still have quite a bit of time. Which is interesting. This is like, I wrote more words than usual. Like a lot more words than usual. So I was like going fast. And then no one spoke. So now you have to speak for five minutes. Questions. I knew John would come through. John, <laughs> that's a good thing. This is we we have a prayer request. That's what I hear, which is a good thing that we can be coming alongside you to pray. for that. And I just, I bet all of us, maybe not all of us, I have been there <laughs> personally of having a conviction of wanting to evangelize and then, for whatever reason, not doing that. This is not an excuse to not do it, but that It I, it's helpless. It's, it is a common experience um, and something that we need God's help. We need God to be working in us to to give us the power and courage to to be faithful and evangelist. That could definitely be it. Can I go ahead and pray for that? Yeah. Then we'll be done. Sorry. Oh, then. Let's pray. hope the prayer is effective. All right, let's pray. Father, we do just lift up this request to you for for Roxanne that you would give her just boldness and confidence to proclaim your gospel, to proclaim to proclaim your truth um, well, and that she would not be fearful or hesitant, um, but that she would seek to honor you with her decisions and to and for the best of this man. That that uh, she does have true desire. We thank you that. She, she cares for the state of his soul. So, not just for Roxanne, we, we pray for all of us that you would work through us and in us to give us the, the confidence and boldness to proclaim your truth to all the non believers that you bring in our lives. Um, just thank you so much for Roxanne's willingness to share this um, resolve that she has and this desire that she has, and pray that you would give her um, the power to execute it even tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.